Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate welcomes back Joseph Lanza to discuss his latest book, Easy Listening, Acid Trip, an elevator ride through 60s psychedelic pop, the surreal landscape where the Beatles met Mantovani. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Joseph Lanza to talk about his book, Easy Listening Acid Trip, an elevator ride through the 60s psychedelic, through 60s psychedelic pop. I threw an extraneous C there. Joseph, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. And this was a really fun book. This is on Feral House. And it's it's a beautiful book, one that I, I actually – normally I mark my books all up for the show, but I, I refuse to do that. I, I taped little sheets of cellophane taped when I needed to make, make a note because I did not want to harm this beautiful book. But tell us about the book, what it covers, and why this particular era drew your interest. Well, I've been wanting to write about this for a long time. In fact, I was working for Time Life for a while. Uh, they, were, they did a, like a 22-CD volume called Instrumental Favorites. And I, I, I chose most of the songs, and I wrote the notes. And I wanted to do a collection of uh, – in fact, the first chapter of the book is called uh, Strobe Lights and Sweet Music, which was a takeoff on a, a, a Irving Berlin song called uh, – uh, soft lights and sweet music, I think, or something like that. Yeah, but, that's correct. Uh, finally, finally, I I I spoke with the editor at Feral House, who whom I knew for a long time, and he said, "Let's go for this because you know you've been passionate about this, and this is a lot of music that people can remember. I mean, they might not remember Love Letters in the Sand or the original For All We Know, or even the Carpenters For All We Know, but they'll remember Strawberry Fields Forever. They'll remember Donovan." Sunshine Superman and Wear Your Love Like Heaven and Incense and Peppermints and those moody blues songs. And um, and what happened was that what put what really got easy listening in gear where it, where it flourished most was with the influence of pop and rock music because they were able to take songs that ordinarily would be elusive to traditional notions of melodic and beautiful and they would bring it out they would bring out uh, the melodies that might have been hidden and uh, it, strangely enough uh, there was this uh, document, documentary that came out of the BBC called um, um, Psychedelic Britannia, I think it was called. And they mentioned how a lot of these rock groups that might have started with these these delusions that they were white R&B people suddenly got into their own roots. They started uh, going into old English folk songs, in the case of Beatles. Um, they started getting into the old, 
um, a little bit, a little bit of skiffle here and there, which was a kind of a strange kind of a, a British form of country uh, before the Beatles. And suddenly, and then they started to get into a uh, Baroque, and there, there was a big Baroque phase going on in the psychedelic era uh, with "Sunday Will Never Be the Same" by Spanky and our gang, and even the Doors. Now the Doors, <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the Doors in the book because I found myself fascinated by myself writing about them because when you think of the doors you just think of Jim Morrison all drugged out and doing dirty things with his body on the stage but when you when you hear a lot of especially the first three albums there's a heck of a lot of easy listening material in there uh, the second album Strange Days has, has carnival music to it you know the, the chromatic scale whatever it's called um, even Light My Fire when they originally recorded Light My Fire, I think they wanted to have it that same kind of samba beat that break on through to the other side has, you know, dun 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 dun. And then uh, Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist, uh, came up with uh, this Bach-inspired thing that begins it and ends it, and I think comes somewhere in the middle. And it changes the song entirely. It, it makes it an instant ear addiction. And it also made it... Uh, right for easy listening interpretations. That's until Jose Feliciano came out with a version a year later, which, in my opinion, was a much lazier version, and unfortunately, too many people used his, his arrangements, whereas The Doors had a much better arrangement, a much more challenging one for an easy listening arranger. And you've you've um, covered quite a bit of ground that I was was saving for later, but I want to I want to talk about the period. And you've got a great quote that you said that this era, um, no other con- time in contemporary musical history, had so many previously clashing musical attitudes merge to satisfy melody-starved listeners. And it is just a fascinating era. You talk about the way Sgt. Pepper's represents the moment. When the Beatles start consciously looking into music of the past, British music hall and and 20s jazz, the stuff that Paul McCartney's dad raised him on. But, you know, John Lennon's mom was singing him Bing Crosby songs. That was the inspiration for Please Please Me was a uh, Bing Crosby song just called Please. So all of the the principal Beatles had – these influences and they were incorporated in their music. And obviously they had symphony orchestras playing on Day in the Life and, and other songs. And, you know, you have the Moody Blues playing with an orchestra. You've you've got the Doors using strings. You've got Love, the L.A. folk rock group, using strings on their now seen as a masterpiece forever changes. But at the time, rock critics really turned on them for being sounded Muzak. And what's interesting to me that some of these groups, like the Beatles, could get away with it and everybody loved them and the critics loved them. And other groups were really savaged for their, quote unquote, turn towards Muzak. I remember the Doors were not that well liked in the music press, uh, especially with when R- Waiting for the Sun came out. And I was a Doors fan back then, and I would always feel bad because you know they would trash the Doors a lot. Uh, they were they, first of all they never really had a bassist, and David Crosby rather arrogantly. Uh, uh, dismiss the doors they didn't swing enough according to him because they i think the doors if left to their true instincts would have done more of that carnival sound or more of that oom pa pa 
Alabama song, Whiskey Bar. You you would have these very eerie songs like End of the Night, and then Summer's Almost Gone, which is a very beautiful. I could imagine Russ Colombo singing it in the 30s, crooning from a grave or something. And you you would just have these beautiful melodies that would come out when uh, forget all that blues stuff, just the beautiful melodies that you could hear. You know, so Ferrante and Teicher or Roger Williams or you know, somebody like Liberace even doing. And um, unfortunately, there was, there was one album that came out called Mike Curb and the Waterfall. And they did some some fairly good uh, uh, attempts at easy listening for some of the songs like The Crystal Ship and Love Street. Um, but I, I'm just surprised there weren't more takers for the doors, unfortunately. But uh, Love is another story because Love was this progressive group that was very popular on the Sunset Strip before the doors. And uh, my theory is that a couple of the a couple of the members were of mixed race. I don't, I, you know, I, um, and I think that when they came out with Forever Changes, people just accused them of selling out to the middle class. I guess, uh, and it, it, it remember it, got, it, it was savage. There are there are critics who said, "Oh, this is Muzak from the Elevator." Even though I like it, I know that I can't like it because it's Muzak from the Elevator. That, that kind of logic. And it was only like uh, 2000, maybe, or just before uh, the lead singer had passed away. They performed the whole uh, song, the Red Telephone song, uh, with with strings and everything live. I mean, by then, people liked it. They understood it. it, it Love wasn't doing anything very unique. I mean, you had groups like there's a group called the Blades of Grass. You had Spanky and Our Gang. You hit a lot of the, the the Sunshine Company. They were using Baroque and strings, and it was a, a Sunshine Pop era. But when Love did it somehow, it was something sacrilegious. I don't know. Uh, that, was, that was the mind of the '60s critic. Yeah, it's hard to put ourselves in, into that space. But you mentioned Mike Curb and the Waterfall, and I don't know if you like this one or not, but I really enjoyed this one. And this is Mike Curb doing his version of The Doors, Crystal Ship. was Mike Curb's Waterfall doing the Doors' Crystal Ship. You, you, did, you tell the sort of historical story of easy listening through the 60s, and with rock as the background, the foreground is artists like David Rose, who's somebody who was very early to cover uh, Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, not very long after the Birds had made it a huge hit. Tell us about this sort of folk rock easy listening phase. Folk rock was this incredible uh, sen sensation. Uh, uh, I, I would read stories. I think Bob Dylan had introduced it. There was this uh, folk uh, Newport Folk Festival, and he brought an electric guitar. And this is a story now. I don't know how true it is, but I'd read it. You can, but I, I love the image of Pete Seeger with an axe threatening to, to, to cut the cord of the electric guitar because it, it went against the, the, the sacred canon of folk music. I love the, the, the image of Pete Seeger wielding an axe to me is great Toby Hooper material for me. <laughs> but um, folk rock suddenly um, in it, in it, it came along around the time of the British invasion. 
you know, 64, 65. And uh, a, a great story about that was that uh, Marianne Faithful, well, let's start with Keith. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. They start. I think their first song was a Beatles song. I want to be your man. One of the ones they wrote. They that were, was their they second single. Yeah. Yeah, their second single. They weren't ardent songwriters, but when they started, one of their first collaborations was "As Tears Go By." Now they said, "Oh, this is this is a little too drippy for us. Let's have Marianne Faithful record it." So Marianne Faithful recorded a beautiful version, and it appeared on the first bona fide easy listening charts of Billboard in 1965. I think in June of 1965, they finally introduced a 40-song chart of easy listening, both instrumental and vocal. And Marianne Faithful was there. And um, shortly afterward, the Rolling Stones said, this is good. Let's do our version. And in both versions, the string arrangements were done by Mike Leander, who was, who was a, a, a British uh, um, arranger. And he later did the arrangement for She's Leaving Home on uh, Sgt. Pepper because uh, George Martin was indisposed. And, uh, but um, Mike Leander, the same year that Mr. Tambourine Man came out, that was in 65, I believe, uh, within months, uh, Mike Leander had an album of, of, of easy listening folk tunes that included Tambourine Man. Uh, and, and, and then um, David Rose did the same thing. He had a version of Mr. Tambourine Man, which was pit, all pizzicato, you know, like, pluck, 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 pluck. And it sounded more like the Dylan version than the Birds version. He might have recorded it before the Birds version came out. Um, you would imagine that the easy listening versions of Tambourine Man would be more according to the Birds version because it was much more melodic. It, it, it had that pretty sound. It had that, that sparkling, echoey sound. But yeah, uh, the same year that the original came out of Mr. Tambourine Man, you had these, these, these easy listening guys right in the shadows, not even waiting a year. And there were very beautiful versions too. I mean, all of them, they're all, they're unique. And um, Bob Dylan is, is amazing because um, when you hear Bob Dylan's version, you know, he appeals to a certain audience, but he had a voice that wasn't traditionally melodic. And, but his songs are, are, are themselves where they get transposed by other people or preferably as easy listening ver versions. A lot of them are very good. You know, it's all over now. Baby blue would be an example. Uh, if not for you, I think uh, Olivia Newton-John came out with a version, and Frank Chaxfield did a a Muzak version with 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 a wah wah pedal pedal in the background, which was nice. Um, but no, see, this is what this, I think. What happened was that these introspective songs started coming out. It was less about romancing, you know, going out to, to to lovers' lane and necking, and more about thinking about things and thinking thinking thoughts. And so when you start thinking thoughts, you start thinking of um, a, a vaster musical vocabulary. And that's why I think easy listening found very um, fertile ground in, 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 the, in the spate of songs that were coming out in that era. And I need to backtrack a little bit because there was a – this was something you said in the middle of the book, but I thought it made for a good introduction. that You say there's three paths to this music for modern listeners – and the first path is just to enjoy it, just to listen to it, pop it on, you know, pick up Liberace's version of MacArthur Park and, and just pop it on, enjoy it. Then there's a second 
level, which is what you call layered listening, which is say, you know, you're, you're listening to Ravi Shankar's nephew take on Jumpin' Jack Flash. Listen to that and think about the Stones version while you're listening to the easy listening version. And then the third layer, the third mode that you describe is you, you use the term the uncanny valley, which is the uncanny valley for those who think they dislike this music. That so many people have been brainwashed and told all their lives elevator music is bad, or easy listening is lame. You're not going to like this. I'm a rock and roller. I don't like this stuff. But something happens when you actually sit down and listen to it and you find yourself recognizing the tunes and enjoying some of it. I yes, think- you're, you're, you disorient yourself, but yet it's a, it's a positive direction. Yeah, and that's I, I kind of go back and forth. I mean, so many times when I when I check this stuff out, it's like, oh my God, here's you know Ferrante and Teicher assailing this rock, this classic rock that takes itself very seriously or whatever. It depends and on you, the song also, because Jumpin' Jack Flash is, is much more of a hard rocker, whereas maybe a Rolling Stones song like She's a Rainbow might have been a better take, or <laughs> even yeah, I mean, or um, even some of the softer songs, Satisfaction. Don't forget when Satisfaction came out. Shortly afterward, David Rose had a, uh, an easy listening version. It was fantastic. Um, we have to same, go back to yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to take that opportunity. Let's hear David Rose's version of Satisfaction. And that was David Rose is saying the Rolling Stones song Satisfaction with his orchestra, um, an early sign of rock music as opposed to rock and roll of the 50s, but the rock music, the new genre that kind of came to fruition in 1965, being assayed by these easy listening guys. It's it's a, a fascinating era uh, to hear that. And, and one of the challenges of doing this show was there were so many fun songs that were new to me. And so I've got a, a list of like 20 songs that we can choose from, but then trying to fit them in with the conversation. It's, it's a lot of moving targets. So I'm, I'm kind of had to seize the moment. Uh, so apologies for interrupting you there, but go back to, if you can recall uh, what you're about to say about David Rose. Well, David Rose did um, a version of Where Your Love Like Heaven later on uh, on Capitol, which was really good. Um, Johnny Arthie's orchestra, I think they come from England, they did an album called The Golden Songs of Donovan, and they did a nice version of Where Your Love Like Heaven. They, you know, and, and a song like I Can't Get No Satisfaction is not a song you would instantly think of having an easy listening version. It was kind of a raucous song about a depressed guy. Um, and he, uh, but David Rose pulled, pulled it off. He, 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 what it was, was that even a song is rhythmic is I can't get no satisfaction which, with its lousy grammar and everything still had a melody and it still had the makings of a melody because even Jagger and Richards who, were, who I think were just middle 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 class English guys they weren't working class I think uh, they they had a knowledge of music that I, I'm afraid is lost on modern day musicians I think they're so lost in their all the mechanics in front of them 
But we have to go back to Percy Faith when you talk about this new generation of, of rock-influenced easy listening. Because in 63, this is just before the Beatles came out, he came out with an album called Themes for Young Lovers. And there were songs like Rhythm of the Rain and uh, I Will Follow Him by uh, Little Peggy March. And, and, and a lot of those songs, which were considered you know, the stuff that young people listen to, that the pre-Beatles uh, pop tunes. And he didn't even use guitar. He just used horns and pianos and lots of echoey strings. And it was wonderful. And then a year later, somebody um, came out with an album called Teen Love Themes. And... Um, it was uh, the same thing. It was, it was, uh, and, and there were even a couple of uh, Beatles songs on the, on the, uh, Jimmy Haskell and his orchestra. And they had A Hard Day's Night on their A World Without Love, which the Beatles had given to Peter and Gordon. They had the song from Mondo Kane, more theme from a summer place. But it was, it was using the same type of pizzicato strings that Percy Faith used, except I think they even went so far as using electric guitars but that's when it started and then um by the time the Hollywood strings were doing Beatles songs they did several volumes and and uh uh Perry Botkin Jr. and Mark Garson had taken over uh from uh Stu Phillips and that's when they did one of the most fascinating Hollywood strings songs it was their version of Strawberry Fields Forever which which you might say is even trippier than the original and they did a day in the life. They did a lot of bravely did a lot of Sergeant Pepper songs and, and songs from that era, the psychedelic era, which really kind of started with um, maybe Rubber Soul, certainly with Revolver and, and then all the way up to Magical Mystery Tour. And, and now that you're missing Hollywood, Hollywood Strings, which was the Capitol Records Orchestra, they incorporated another element, which leads into this river and i'm talking about surf rock which is the source for brian wilson and sunshine pop and and so much of the pop psychedelia from the west american west coast that's gone on but it starts with surf rock and the easy listening cruise the hollywood strings are, are covering the beach boys very early on phil Spector's sidekick jack nitsche is is doing the lonely surfer so talk about surf rock and how it clicked with easy listening amazing similarities not in every case i mean there was some like dick dale was a little like dick dale's meester lou might not have worked whereas uh, martin denny's meester lou may may have worked better but I, I i just noticed that there were similarities uh uh well the shadows they came out of england they were uh, cliff richard's uh backup band they came out with a song called wonderful land and it was really from the point of view of, of, of lonely guys who live stuck in England that are thinking of this wonderful land in California where you could surf and the beaches were endless and you had Malibu and whatever. And uh, it, it, was, it was pretty, it was popular. And you had Nori Paramore and his orchestra doing this very beautiful string backing. And, uh, and so, and then the, the wonderful Lawrence Welk, he was on the same uh, record label dot that the Chantays were on, and the Chantays did Pipeline. So he had the Chantays perform on his show one time, 
And so he recorded a champagne version of Pipeline, but he also it was also nice that uh, his Lawrence Welk Champagne Orchestra had had a collaboration with the Chantays right on Lawrence Welk's show. Um, there were melodies. The the um, the guitar often took on shades of what would later be the sitar, the raga rock, the way they would, the, the, uh, or 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 the slack key guitar, which kind of uh, underscores. Uh, the, the origins of, of surf, which really came out of Hawaii, I think. But yeah, I, I, I was glad to go a little further back because don't forget, songs about the surf, especially in the case of Brian Wilson, are talking about another world. Because from what I read, I think he tried surfing one time and he got hit in the head with the board. He was terrified of water. He was terrified of a lot of things, but he would write these pretty songs about the beach and what and whatever and. and and that is what got him by. But what I liked most, I liked what the Hollywood Strings did with the Beach Boys, especially their song In My Room with Lincoln Mallorca, who was a session player in California, did this beautiful like uh, gliding piano throughout it. And uh, he, they, they brought up people who might not like the Beach Boys might really be fascinated by some of the great melodies that the group put out. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. And one of the other ingredients in the brew that, that you're describing is and, and you alluded to this a little bit, but there's this jumble of generations where artists not just like the Beatles and the Bee Gees are looking back, but also groups like Winchester Cathedral that are almost totally retro. But let's let's hear from our sponsors and then come back and you can tell us about Winchester Cathedral and the way they collided with the easy listening scene. And so, yeah, so you, we've got Winchester Cathedral and a new vaudeville band that are doing openly uh, peons to the, the 1920s music. How do the easy listening uh, – I mean, it doesn't take long for the easy listening scene to pounce on this. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, several easy listening artists had their versions of it. It was a tune that really um, – it was, it was written by a contemporary uh, 60s doctrine composer. Um, well, and also the song, there's a kind of hush all over the world. You remember Herman's Hermits? Uh, the new Absolutely. Yeah, the new vaudeville band, I believe, were the first to record it. It was recorded for them. I think Jeff Stevens is the name of the composer. Um, it was it was going back to the Rudy Valley days. And don't forget, this was a time when Rudy Valley was still alive. In fact, I think he was playing a villain on Batman TV show. You had all these generations of people alive at once. I always think of the, the Ultimate Academy Award show back in the late 60s where you had Betty Davis and you had Marlon Brando and you had Warren Beatty and you, know, you might have had uh, you know, some other young, like John Voight or some, some up-and-coming star, all together in one place. You know, now of course, many of them have died, but I thought that Winchester Cathedral, and then they did a follow-up called Peekaboo and Finchley Central. This that, that was the little side era where they they brought real um, styles from the past. Don't forget Tiny Tim too; he was popular then uh, with his crazy falsetto, and he he brought back a song called Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which. Uh, um, a crooner named Nick Lucas had had, had uh, done back in the twenties or thirties or whatever, and then you had um, oh what was that other song? Uh, Ding dong, the witch is dead from the Wizard of Oz. You had the the Fifth Estate. I think they were from Massachusetts, 
And so they're doing this song from the Wizard of Oz. In the middle of it, they're doing this this tune called La Bore, which really goes back to like you know the Renaissance era. You know, it's it, 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 you know I don't want to hum it, but in, in the middle of the song, they they have this little it sounds a little bit like the sailor's hornpipe, the Popeye the sailor theme. And um, by, by listening to these instrumental time travels into the past, we realize that many songs that are familiar are based on the same template, that you can hear the Sailor's Hornpipe, the theme to Gilligan's Island, and even the song Dixie, coming from the same type of, of songs which might have had an origin in Baroque. Mm. Um, no, I just think that's the nature of songs, like sailor songs. Um, there, there, there was a song that um, that Stephen Foster wrote called "Old Black Joe," and you know, it, it's it's offensive nowadays because it just it was a product of its time. But I remember, I think uh, one of the, I think the Brothers Four, or one of the, uh, or uh, the Four, perhaps one of those kind of folk pop. Uh, quartets, they rewrote it. It's called Gone Are the Days, it was called. And it was such a beautiful melody that uh, Stephen Foster made these beautiful melodies, but they got couched in, I guess, what they called minstrel show type of stuff. But, if, uh, you know, with different lyrics or just as instrumentals, they just, they exist as beautiful as beautiful tunes. And a lot of those were reincorporated into pop tunes in, in, during that psychedelic era. And it's also, you know, the, the, you know, the cliche about the acid flashback. You don't have to take LSD to appreciate the idea that the LSD experience for many people allowed them to have these flashbacks to a past that they ordinarily wouldn't have had. And that way of looking back, I think, was very crucial to, to, to the kind of music that was going on. The, the, the Turtles did Happy Together. Now, I think a couple of them had uh, the roots. Uh, their parents were rooted in, 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 in kind of the, the vaudeville Era. So they were able to bring, and they, you know, they bring these New York songwriters from the Brill Building to write "Happy Together," and she'd rather be with me. So you, you would have this mixture of psychedelic effects, electric guitars, flanging or distortions, but yet you would have these melodies that you could imagine being performed in the in the 1920s or 30s. You know, in different contexts altogether, but that, that is something that would, never would happen again. It was, it was, it was like this this ten year period, I would say, and um, it, it was a time when people thought the world was falling apart because people were taking all these drugs and guys were growing their hair down to their waist and these discotheques looked very threatening. But yet, while that looked so terrifying, that generation was also carrying on what I call the Euro American songbook. Okay. Absolutely. And and not only are they going back in time, they're casting a wide net for global influences. And so ragas and sitars are another element in this. And some of these Indian artists even become easy listening artists in this era. Yeah, that's a, that's a strange. Now, um, uh, Ananda Shankar, I think, was Ravi Shankar's nephew. He, his first yep. album was, was pretty much standard easy listening melodies with the sitar. Uh, Ravi Shankar himself was much more of a traditionalist, and he he probably didn't like the using the sitar for pop purposes. I think um, when when George even George Harrison's Within You Without You, I think used a, a Western uh, orchestra behind it. You know, it wasn't pure raga, 
So, you know, I think, I think when uh, Ravi Shankar got into a little bit of trouble among his peers in India when he got so involved with the Beatles and pop, uh, I think when we heard the sitar in America or in Britain or Canada, um, we heard something odd. It was, we weren't really meant to be scholars in raga music or Indian culture. It was something that was just odd. And I think I quoted the, the, the British author, J.G. Ballard, that it had this strange twang to it that uh, for some Western ears might have been disorienting. But I think the disorienting part of it made it so alluring. I, I think one of the first uh, appearances of the sitar was on the song Norwegian Wood and that's all about uh, John Lennon singing about being lured into this apartment by this woman or women with uh, with uh, maybe not so good intentions or whatever but it was meant to be well for lack of a better word weird and I don't mean that in a bad way either um, the weirdness but the lack of familiarity was what, part of what made Raga so appealing then because you could pair raga with more more traditional Western melodic structures, so you would have this uh, contrast between the, what we consider traditional and what would be uh, what we'd call a foreign influence, which would be the, the, the sitar. But yeah, raga rock. I mean, I don't think it was a it was. You, you would have to really study the history of raga music. And I don't know if the electric sitar on Green Tambourine was meant to be a serious uh, cross-cultural statement so much as using the sitar the way we had used the theremin. It was a sound effect that gave us an otherworldly sensation. Absolutely. And bringing up Green Tambourine, the group that recorded that for a hit, the Lemon Pipers, they're a group that would probably have seen themselves or wish that they had been on the acid rock side of the line you draw between, you know, the, the San Francisco bands and Jimi Hendrix and the, the, the hard edge of psychedelic era and the psychedelic pop we're talking about, which is the Beatles and the Moody Blues and um, the Beach Boys and the Pet Sounds and Smile era. And, and, the Lemon Pipers hook up with a producer and a songwriter. They're given the song Green Tambourine, and it's a massive, massive hit, both in their version and in covers like Lawrence Welk's. And let's hear Lawrence Welk saying Green Tambourine, and then we'll talk about the way the Lemon Pipers fought their fate. the great Lawrence Welk to say in a champagne music version of Green Tambourine, originally by the Lemon Pipers. How did they try to kick back against the, the corner they'd been painted into? Well, they, yeah, they saw themselves as this progressive group. I don't know. How, I think they had one single. I don't know if it really went far, but uh, there was this, oh gosh, um, there were these New York songwriters from the Brill Building. And uh, they they thought they they would they went I think to where the Lemon Pipers lived, and they recorded a song, 
And I don't think they liked the, the Lemon Pipers didn't like it. It was Paul Lika had written it, I think, along with this other collaborator. And they just thought it was pop. It was it was just you know they pop. It was sissy music. It, it, it was just it was it was too white. It was too middle class. Whatever whatever hangups these people had um, and still have in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, Paul Lika brought it back to New York, and he played with it a bit. And they, you know, they they had the that electric sitar effect in it, and all that, and the and the and the and the, and the, and the st- distortions. It was just an instant hit. I mean, it, it traveled too. I think England liked it, and and then they came out with a couple of other songs that Lika had written. Um, one was called Rice Is Nice. And another one was called Blueberry Blue and Jungle Jelly Jungle and Orange Marmalade. They were all really good with with strings. There was this guy named Irv Spice. His name crops up all the time. I wish I got it. I don't know if he's still alive. The Irv Spice strings come up a lot in these 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 easy listening psychedelic albums. And there were great songs. But if you listen to the Lemon Pipers album, it's like it's it's a mixture of those nice. Studio enhanced songs, and what the Lemon Pipers thought they were, which was just just another acid band. It just there was a real clash there. I don't understand. I think later on, one of the one of the I think maybe the lead singer of the Lemon Pipers admitted that Green Tambourine was good. He didn't like the other songs though, but I don't understand why they couldn't have played along with the game. I think the songs are great. I mean, um, you know, see, that's what, and that brings us back to Muzak and the whole thing about elevator music be, being not real, not authentic. The studio is what makes the song more than anything else. I mean, when you hear the Beatles played live on Ed Sullivan, they didn't sound as good as when they were <laughs> heard on record. Especially as they got more sophisticated with the studio effects, and I just don't know why a lot of these bands just didn't go along with that. This is, this was part of their heritage, and these these were great songs that the that the Lemon Pipers were famous for doing because they were they were arranged so well. I mean, the, the it was the true singer from the Lemon Pipers did do the vocals. You know, they didn't have a substitute or anything. But it's unfortunate. There are some contradictions. You know, I talk about the Doors having that easy listening side. Even Jefferson Airplane. Um, there were several songs on Surrealistic Pillow and on Crown of Creation, which would have been wonderful, easy listening. And I never heard any easy listening versions of Lather or Triad or even the song Crown of Creation. They, they could have done easy listening on that. And then on Surrealistic Pillow, you know, there, there was an, e- an easy listening version of Somebody to Love. I think I have two of them listed. And there was one easy listening version of White Rabbit, which is difficult because White Rabbit is a mixture of Bolero by Ravel and a little bit of Miles Davis. It was a very derivative song, except for Grace Slick's voice. But uh, uh, Gabor Szabo, who was a Hungarian guitarist, he fancied himself a jazz guitarist. But at least on this album, he was more of a pop uh, player. And he had this group called the California Dreamers, which was sort of like a mixture of the Ray Conniff singers and maybe uh, some other uh, 60s-style backup group. But it was White Rabbit, and it wasn't bad. And it was just ba ba ba. There were no vocals to make people think about taking LSD. <laughs> but no, there were a lot of so, there were a lot of so-called heavy, not many, but Jefferson Airplane and the Doors were among those so-called heavy groups that had material that could have been very. Um, open to easy listening and one of the ironies the Velvet Underground really were not that well known uh, in America they, I think they become they became more of a, of a 70s kind of 
punk uh, phenomenon. But when I listened to some of the Velvet Underground songs, so many of them would have been beautiful, easy listening. You know, if you, if the, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Banana album, I think. It was of course. Andy Warhol. Of course. Sunday yeah. Morning, I think, is the one that opens up. It would have been beautiful. And then Lou Reed later came out with Transform with songs like Satellite of Love and Perfect Day. Perfect, easy listening. I don't know why there weren't any takers. I, I'm sure Lou Reed wouldn't have minded. Uh, yeah, I, I could. I, I've gone into the alternate history of the Velvet Underground. Yeah, the album was recorded in 66, but came out in 67. And Andy Warhol wasn't part of the music biz. It could have been marketed very differently like you said and I think there was potential there but you know the Velvet Underground get their huzzahs and you know we'll talk about them on a, a punk rock episode at some point in the future right now though I want to talk about another not group but some other creatives who sort of railed against the way they were ultimately perceived and I'm talking about the team that wrote the play Hair they saw themselves as a total revolution on Broadway and yet they're pretty quickly swallowed up by the easy listening Borg well, I think they they opened up at the Biltmore Theater, I think, in in in, in sixty eight, summer of sixty eight, and within weeks they had music, at least five Muzak versions of their songs recorded by Muzak. Uh, one of them you can hear called Aquarius, and and it and it's by and it and and the, and the credits go to. Um, Oh, yeah, McDermott, uh, Ragney, and and Rad, Rad. Yeah. Galt McDermott uh, really did the music pretty much, yeah. and uh, the Galt McDermott Orchestra is listed on the music album is providing the music. I got in touch with him, but this is shortly before his death. He doesn't remember it, but a lot of people don't remember things. But I remember there was this big push to, to push as many hair songs as possible, so you would have the Happenings do songs from here. You would have uh, Phyllis Newman. And Barbara Streisand and yeah, very middle of the road people like what's his name the guy I mentioned before the Julius LaRosa did a version I think with the four lads in the background of Hare Krishna you know the B N song. There were wow. several. It, it was it was such. It was supposed to be such a. I saw a production of it not on Broadway, but I saw a production of it, and mostly it was just a bunch of uh, skits with a lot of you know dirty words and a lot of a lot of sodomy references, which I, I didn't mind. But uh, but it, it was supposed to be so threatening and, and so anti-American and anti-establishment. But what we remember are songs like "Good Morning Starshine." And uh, even like the song here, the cow sills covered, uh, Aquarius, the fifth dimension. I mean, the fifth dimension and the Raycon of Singers both did versions of Aquarius, and they were invited by the Nixon White House to perform. So you, you do get this strange generational goulash going on here. But here, here, here was one of those um, uh, contradictions because so much of hair is remembered for for its pop influences, its pop songs, and I think in in two thousands, uh, Galt McDermott and uh, maybe one of the other the the, the uh, not Jerome Ragney, the the other guy, James Ratto was on with him. And uh, Galt McDermott was just mourning over the fact that there are no more pop songs anymore. This was like the, the 2000s or something. And um, during the making of Hair, while they were producing it, there 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 are problems with drugs and whatever. But what re, what, stand, what will be remembered through the test of time will be the songs, and they will be the often if you listen to Percy Faith's version of the songs. Or I, I think perhaps uh, you know there there are other people. That is what 
I like about the contradictions. And uh, Galt McDermott was kind of a straight-laced guy. He wasn't. He didn't even know what a hippie was. He claims until he met uh, Ratto and Ragney. Um, it was. It was. It, it was in the tradition of thoroughly modern Millie in a lot of ways when you look back. <laughs> Absolutely. And you talked about the fifth dimension, and you know they're known for working with Jimmy Webb, who had a rather bizarre hit of his own in this period with Richard Harris, the actor. And I'm talking about MacArthur Park, which is this over-the-top, excessively long song for a pop single. I think it was six, seven minutes long with pretty bizarre lyrics. And I want to play Liberace's version. He put it into a medley with Cherry Hill Park, MacArthur Park, and Echo Park. Let's hear the great Liberace. Liberace taking Jimmy Webb's MacArthur Park and put it into a blender with Cherry Hill Park and Echo Park and his fabulous uh, chandelier piano style to, to put it all together. Again, this is just a fascinating era. You've got somebody like Liberace, who is a, a pop star in the early 50s, who became a, a king of Vegas and, and celebrity TV show throughout the 60s and 70s and into the 1980s just immediately getting a handle on Jimmy Webb, who's a very young composer. And and in some you know, Jimmy Webb's one of these people, he never complained about his success or or being seen as a pop artist, but you know, very unique guy. And and I don't know, the contradictions of this era just really fascinate me. MacArthur Park, to me, strikes me as an acid song. I don't know if he was taking acid, but the, the elaborate metaphor of the melting cake. I love the song when it came out. First of all, I think it was the first seven-minute song. It, it was before Hey Jude, I think, and um, it was in the summer of 68. I believe it came out, the, the, the Richard Harris version, and then Jimmy Webb came out with his own version. But I, I remember he, he performed it on the Mike Douglas show, uh, and I, I remember he kept saying, I'll never have, I'll never have that recipe again and someone left the cake out of the rain and I thought this is amazing I, I, I love the the way that he took the image of a of a of a of a lovelorn guy who goes I guess to MacArthur Park to see this woman of his dreams get married to somebody else and um, I thought it was wonderful and, and people around me were saying it's such a stupid song Why, what's, what's the cake have to do with anything I mean they get so hung up on the literal meaning but now it's considered a classic but it was right in there right in the psychedelic era and you do have you you have all these different musical influences and the song was offered to the association um i think uh jimmy webb had uh, intended it as being some kind of a uh, cantata of some sort uh they turned it down i don't know why maybe they didn't like the cake either but i thought uh you know jimmy i mean uh richard harris really had no voice but sometimes a, a, a no voice can be a good voice and I think that he, he did a great version of it I mean maybe it was because because of his gruff delivery but I, I put that in in the um, chapter I think with what did I put that in with um, another song that was very pop well we can't forget San Francisco be sure to wear flowers in your hair 
Absolutely. Uh, John Phillips wrote that for his his buddy, Scott McKenzie, and it, it was introduced at the Monterey Pop Festival, which is this big demarcation between the point when Southern California's sunshine pop and folk rock rule the scene after Monterey acid rock rules the scene. And yet, ironically, it's a song that's immediately taken up by uh, the Easy Listening Brigades. That's the theme song of the Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah, and, and, and I think uh, Scott McKenzie came on with the Mamas and the Papas at the end of that festival and sang it. Um, and I think John Phillips wrote it as part of, of, of a public relations ploy to get San Francisco in on this because San Francisco city fathers were already freaking out because the, the uh, what were they called, the, the B-in that was in January of 1967 already was inviting a whole bunch of drug addicts and pro- pro- there were a lot of problems. The summer of love was not a summer of love. I mean, I, I, I remember there was a story of George Harrison and his wife Patty at the time walked into Haight-Ashbury, and I think they feared for their lives. I mean, because there's a drug called STP, which was really popular, and it wasn't a summer of love, really. It, 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 it's kind of, it, Scott McKenzie gives us this wonderful, beautiful kind of package tour idea of it, which is fine. I'd rather remember it that way. Um, but but that was an instant uh, 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 easy listening classic. And then the, the British had their their answer to it. It was called "Let's Go to San Francisco" by this group called the Flowerpot Men. It wasn't very popular here, but it it was a very beautiful instrumental, which, like the Scott McKenzie song, merged traditional melody with 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 new imagery and, and, and ideals about the. Well, it was about a, a new sensation that turned out to be more of an irritation for many people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and Scott McKenzie's song, you know, becomes inadvertently this sort of advertisement for the kind of people that are later going to be sucked up by that Manson family and others. You know, you just visualize every 13-year-old runaway in the country at the time getting on a bus to San Francisco and, you know, the Hells Angels were waiting for him with STP and all kinds of uh, awful things. Well, that, that movie Give Me Shelter kind of said it all for me because, you know, you know one, of the, one, of the, one of the, we still hear it, the word fascist all the time is used very loosely. If you don't agree with somebody, he's a fascist. But I can't think of anything more fascistic than being at a rock concert all drugged out and having the hell's angels around you everywhere you go it's your guards <laughs> yes. I mean, come on i mean that's like this to me that's the gestapo i'm sorry that was the 60s to me that behind all the beauty of the flowers and the trip there was this violence that was just lurking at the edge of it unfortunately and uh, grace grace flick herself said you know it wasn't the beautiful thing that we remember it is because there's something in the human genetic genetic code which is violence yeah absolutely and you talked throughout this book about the theme you know this there's this contrast between the beautiful music and the bright colors of the psychedelic era but there's always this undercurrent of dread and sadness and one of the easy listening hits you talk about was the theme song from rosemary's baby that was sung by mia farrow uh, for the soundtrack and and did very well but was immediately adopted by the Easy Listening uh, and, and music. Yeah, Hugo, I think Hugo Montenegro had a version of it. it was, I, I, I have it in my discography. There are several people. And, and, and the Easy Listening billboard chart had Mia Farrow's version on there. It, it became released as a single. And when you hear it, it does sound like a very weak voice lady uh, singing a lullaby. But, of course, it's the birth of the devil. 
And <laughs> yeah, it's it actually reminds me of some of Charles Manson's songs with the the, the female choruses and the minor key minor key tunes. It's a very it's perfect for the movie. It's very sinister uh, and creepy, and and the music or the easy listening versions that you under, unearthed in the discography are well worth hearing. And and I put them in some playlists of kind of creepy music that I enjoy listening to, and I want to spook myself. And well, you know, it's funny because shortly after that came out, I think Ennio Morricone did music for the uh, movie called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, using that same kind of style. You know, the la la la's. He made it sound more eerie. But if you listen to some of the easy listening versions i think hugo hugo winterhalter might have done it i'm not sure but if you listen to the easy listening versions of the lullaby from rosemary's baby you don't hear as much satan in there even with even with mia farrow's uh, voice but it's it's the irony of it that this is supposed to be a lullaby but you know she's holding the, the devil in her i guess the, the spawn <laughs> of the devil and 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 that's the pro and that goes back to even even beautiful songs from the past um have this dark side to them. I mean, you know, people people had this notion that, you know, in the early 60s, things were innocent, but then the evil Beatles came with their drugs. That is such a false interpretation of history. If you listen to the songs by the Shangri-Las about the death, a lot of songs about death in the early 60s and the late 50s. Uh, Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio. Oh, it sounds like a pretty folk song. It's about a guy who who's going to be hanged for stabbing his girlfriend or wife or whatever. Yeah, there's <laughs> a ton of dark undercurrents. One artist I want to talk to you before, about before we close is Donovan. And, you know, you talk about the doors and you quote him several times objecting to Buick's use of like my fire in a commercial. And they even, you know, John Dinsmore, the drummer, is quoted as saying, I don't even mind easy listening versions. I just don't want commercials. Donovan, on the other hand, had no problem with this stuff. And, no. And, and he was good. And and was on the Andy Williams show, did a whole special of his music with Andy Williams, who's the epitome of square in the late sixties. But I think yeah, he would he would but his wife was Claudine Langer, so they gave him some cachet into the world of the macabre in a sense. I mean, I don't think she meant to be macabre, but Claudine <laughs> when she Langer, shot her husband later on. Well there was you know there, you know Somebody told me that, you know, why didn't you mention it? Because I wrote a book called Vanilla Pop, and I had this chapter called French Vanilla. Where I'm talking about Claudine Langer, and they said, why didn't you mention the murder? That happened years after her career had ended. It had nothing to do with her career. Whereas, you know, Karen Carpenter's anorexia had something to do with her music. It, she, she was going through the problems when she was singing it, so you could draw some kind of a theory. But to me, the the, the Spider Savage murder and her music are just separate entities, and you know, to bring up the murder is just... If you want to write a biography of Claudine Langer, but uh, I just didn't feel it was the right place. It, there was nothing in any of her songs, except she did do a version of the, the lullaby from Rosemary, Mary's Baby with English lyrics uh, called Sleep Safe and Warm. But she just and she loved Donovan's songs. I think she sang a few of them, like Colors, and um, but but Donovan had no problem. I think there was a there was a, a soda called Mellow Yellow that was out sometime in the seventies, and he didn't mind them using his songs. When the Gap came out with some songs and the. Sometime in the early 2000s, I think they were singing Mellow Yellow, a whole bunch of, you know, Gen Xers or whatever they were called back then. You know, Donovan thought that, you know, he had a message that could travel anywhere in the commercial world or in the record world. Uh, the doors were different. I think Jim Morrison is the one who had the big hang up about using Light My Fire for the Buick commercial. But I believe that commercial did air. 
but it didn't air for long because I think Jim Morrison was out of the country or something. Uh, it's, it's kind of a mystery because I've heard contradictory stories about that. Uh, they were offered a lot of money to, to use the song Light My Fire. You know, they were just going to say, come on, Buick, light my fire. I, you know, they should have went with it. It would have been great. But I think maybe Morrison was going through this phase in his uh, depressive existence where he wanted to be authentic. This, 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 this obsession to be authentic was, was it's still very, very much part of, of the rock and the blues culture. And, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards said, oh, we wrote this sissy song called It's Cheers Go By, but we're noted for being really hard-edged rhythm and blues people. Somehow that's more real. <laughs> no, that's more authentic. I never understood that logic. Well, I think part of it was that uh, when they would come in and present something like that, Brian Jones would heckle them out of the room. So they had a, a, a tough crowd to get over with all their intra-band hostility there. But I want to sum up with a quote from the end of your book that nothing feels and sounds sweeter than an easy listening acid trip, but be sure to guard the set and setting against buzz killing invaders that stalk the periphery. So Joseph Lanza, it's been great fun. The book is easy listening acid trip, an elevator ride through 60 psychedelic pop, which is an angle I am not aware of any other writer attacking. So thank you very much for curating and bringing all this really fascinating and fun music to our attention. And, and I hope we can have you back on the show. I'd love to talk about vanilla pop or Russ Colombo or any of you. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, and, I, and thanks for appreciating this. Um, it's, it's great to write about and to talk about. Our pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will welcome Dave Thompson to discuss his book, Come and Get These Memories, The Genius of Holland Dozier Holland, Motown's Incomparable Songwriters. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Easy Listening Acid Trip, an elevator ride through 60s psychedelic pop, is published by Feral House. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.